Let's get started. Welcome. I'm Susan Schofield, a member of the Ameritai Council. David Abernathy, our fearless leader, is out of town, so he asked me to stand in, and I'm standing in. Um, for the record, since we're recording, today is April 20th, 2017, and this is our spring quarter lecture in the autobiographical reflection series that we host, the Ameritai Council hosts. And our distinguished speaker is Dr. David Hamburg. Um, since this is our last lecture of the year, um, I wanted to give a special thanks, I hope she's in the room, she is, to the Provost's Office and to Pam Moore, who provides all the support to the Ameritai Council for communications and puts on these very nice receptions that we enjoy after the lectures. So let's give a hand to Pam. A couple of quick reminders. Um, we have the other series of smaller talks that the Ameritai Council co-hosts uh, with the Stanford Center on Longevity, and the last one of those is coming up in a couple weeks. It will be on um, Tuesday, May 2nd at 4 o'clock in the usual spot. And um, it's a panel this time of three people, including Dick Scott, an Ameritai Council member, and two other people who are involved with the Avenidas program. And the topic is local resources for aging in community. So I think it'll be very interesting, and we hope many of you will want to come to that. And then the second thing is, hot off the presses, we just got a date for an end-of-year um, Ameritai and Spouses reception, just a purely social event. We've done them before. People seem to love them. So it will be on uh, June 20th, that's a Tuesday, from 4 to 6 at the Faculty Club, but you will get a notice about that. Um, so, now my job is, I will briefly introduce Jim Mark, who then will have the pleasure of introducing David Hamburg. So, Jim Mark is Stanford's Johnson & Johnson Professor of Surgery Emeritus. He's a distinguished cardiothoracic surgeon. Jim came to Stanford from Yale, and 50 years, more than 50 years later, he's still here. Um, from 1972 until his retirement in 1997, he was the founding head of the Division of Thoracic Surgery within the Department of Cardiothoracic Surgery. I think I got those words right. Um, he's a nationally admired leader in the field of medicine. He served as the chief of staff at the Stanford Hospital, an associate dean in the medical school in several different capacities and president of many different societies and academies. Jim also has a special place in the annals of the Ameritai Council, because 15 years ago, Jim and Al Hasdorf formed the Ameritai Council. So um, at that time, Hank Greeley was the chair of the faculty senate, and he was also interested in having a group formed so that there could be representation of Ameritai ex officio, but at the Faculty Senate. So that was the beginnings of the Ameritai Council. And Al and Jim also came up with the lovely idea that we should have quarterly talks by distinguished faculty, which we continue to do to this day. So um, Jim and David Hamburg go way back to the early days when the Stanford Medical School was moving from San Francisco to the campus. And Jim will talk a little more about that when he comes up. So your turn, Jim.
Thank you, Susan. I hope you'll allow me to put that up. Okay. <laughs> That's good. Uh, good afternoon. Nice to see a big crowd here. <clears throat> it's both an honor and a pleasure to introduce David Hamburg as our Maritime Council speaker this quarter. As Susan mentioned, David and I go way back. Our families go back even farther. David was raised in Evansville, Indiana, and his family were friends with my aunt and uncle there. As most of you know, the clinical departments of Stanford Medical School moved from San Francisco to the Stanford campus in 1959. The basic science departments were already here. The concept of a Stanford as a research-intensive medical school began at that time. David Hamburg was a choice to be the first chair of the Department of Psychiatry, and he joined such luminaries as Arthur Kornberg, Joshua Lederberg, Avram Goldstein, and Henry Kaplan as departmental leaders. This was an illustrious group. David Hamburg's star shone as brightly as any of the others. I'd been on the Stanford faculty for five years when in 1970 I was asked to be an associate dean for student affairs and as such served on that executive committee alongside, actually well behind, those other people I've mentioned. It was in that setting, Bob Glazer was the dean, it was in that setting that I first saw David in professional action. If there was ever a bunch of powerful and dysfunctional group, that was it, and they needed group therapy. <laughs> David was the perfect person to serve in that role. The following year, David and seven others of Stanford's distinguished faculty uh, started the program in human biology, which is an immediate and resounding success. One of the visiting lecturers was Jane Goodall, whose association with Stanford was productive, but was cut short by the kidnapping of several Stanford students from the Gombe Stream National Park in Tanzania. My wife, Maxie, attended some of Jane's lectures. And after one of them, Maxie asked David if they ever needed a surgeon in Tanzania. David wondered whether I would even consider such a possibility. I would and did. So Maxie and our three daughters spent a year in Tanzania, whereas I was a visiting professor at their new medical school. It was a year of a lifetime for us and brought me even closer to David Hamburg as a colleague, mentor, and friend to whom I'm eternally grateful. I'm certain he will tell us more about Tanzania during his talk. After leaving Stanford in 1976, David has had a distinguished career, having been president of the Carnegie Corporation, president of the Institute of Medicine, and of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He has served on the Board of Trustees of Stanford and on numerous national policy advisory boards. I'm going to mention just three of the honors that he's received. These are the Public Welfare Medal of the National Academy of Sciences, the Sarnat Award from the Institute of Medicine, which he shared with his wife, Betty, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. There are others. Davis has devoted his career to preventing human suffering. I can think of no higher calling. Davis' family is as accomplished as he. Betty is a graduate of Vassar and of Yale Medical School. 
She had a distinguished career as a child and adolescent psychiatrist over a lifetime, a career recently cut short by health problems. Daughter Peggy has had a remarkable career in public health. Her most recent position was commissioner of the FDA from 2009 to 2015. Along the way, she was commissioner of health for the city of New York. She was at Stanford to give a lecture just a couple of days ago, but had to leave in order to satisfy other obligations. Son Eric was a congressional aide for a number of years and is now a writer, director, producer, and attorney in Hollywood. He was the co-author of some of David's books. Eric is here this afternoon. Eric, would you stand and take a bow? There you go. David will speak today about Stanford as a profound impetus for an unexpected, gratifying, and long career. So without further ado, I'm pleased to introduce to you David Hamburg. Well, thank you very much. Can you hear me all right? Uh, this is a, a real homecoming for me. I see so many old friends. You wouldn't have had such a large turnout if not for the fact that many of you interacted with me five years, 20 years, 40 years, I don't know how long. Uh, I first hit this campus in 1957, so it's a while. And it's, I'm so glad to come back. Uh, I would have I was in and out of here for, for years, 15 years in the faculty and about a decade as on the board of trustees and part-time, but a lot of time in helping to develop an Institute for International Studies, which today is Freeman Spogli. And when I was at Carnegie, we made a number of grants. Stanford, some people thought I was too partial to Stanford, but in fact, there was a wealth of talent of the, pro the problems we were working on in fact, the two universities that won the most competitions in our, in our were, were Stanford and Harvard. I'm sorry about that. I, my own alma mater was Indiana, where I grew up, but we didn't have quite the same talent in all fields, though we did in some, for example, in genetics. We were great in genetics. But um, it's so good to be back. I would have come back much sooner, except as a uh, as Jim said, uh, my wife has been ill. About eight or nine years ago, we began to see that she was developing Alzheimer's. And our daughter, Peggy, who is a remarkable person in her own right, uh, said to us, I know you guys are immortal, but uh, still, when you get older, it's nice to be with your family. And she rather insisted that they build an apartment under their very nice house that was connected with it, and yet, and yet, also separate from it. So that's where we've been, and as you know what Alzheimer's is, we did everything in our power in every conceivable way to slow the pace of the relentless disease, and I felt I, I was walking a tightrope trying to spend a few hours a day when she was asleep uh, doing some, continuing my professional work and spending the rest of the time with her to the extent that it seemed to be comforting to her to have me nearby. So I didn't travel, very rarely. 
occasionally to pick up some award or other, but aside from that, I didn't travel. And I most of all missed uh, not coming back here because when I was here was a very formative, exciting time, you know, from the standpoint of medicine, the fact that, that Wally Sterling, who I revered, had the courage to overcome the opposition of the, the then Board of Trustees to the idea of moving the medical school down here and, uh, and, and saw the, the beauty of having the entire university in one place and get the interactions that would be possible in research and teaching that way. Uh, I do have, I do take some credit for Jim Marks being here. I was chairman of a search committee. I was sort of a professional searcher during the years here. Matter of fact, there were three or four three or four presidents in a row whose search committee I served, one of which I chaired, but uh, also a couple of deans and uh, various department chairs. So I was asked to chair a committee to get a new professor of surgery. And uh, one of the members of that committee was Arthur Kornberg, who was a great friend and it was a privilege to be with him. At the same time, Arthur thought that, you know, really anybody on a medical faculty ought to be a biochemist. He was one of the greatest biochemists of our time. And his son, also a great scientist. He, uh, he however, came around to the notion that uh, an excellent surgeon, an outstanding teacher, in fact, had been the, the previous years outstanding teacher at Yale, was an asset, provided that he understood the importance of biochemistry for surgery and other, <laughs> other fields. Bob Chase was, many of you know him and know what a wonderful person he was, and he promptly recruited Jim Mark. So indirectly, I have the privilege of getting Jim Mark here, and that was a very good thing for Stanford. Well. It, it certainly is a happy homecoming for, for me. Uh, those years on the faculty and on the board were, were very gratifying. Uh, I was surprised how much I enjoyed being on the board. I had, by that time, I had left the faculty. I'll come back to that in a moment. But uh, I got hoisted on my own petard because I was a student, or. Uh, faculty representative, say student, my wife was a student representative to the Vassar board and got to know Eleanor Roosevelt, who was her, her inspiration for the rest of her life. Uh, I was a faculty representative and a good friend for a long time of John Gardner's. Uh, and John Gardner and I discussed, weren't, shouldn't there be some kind of term limits on board membership? either by age or by length of service. It was a very good board, but almost everybody there had been, been there for a very long time. And uh, so we, they agreed without much difficulty to setting an age limit of 70. And I was enjoying it so much that I was shocked when it turned out I got to be 70 and I was kicked off. <laughs> so uh, I've missed it ever. Ever since, I had some interesting experience on that board, and I'm not ashamed to say 
that I used whatever influence I had to advance certain causes I believed in, like the importance of a really first-rate institute on international studies, which I guess is now Freeman Spogli. I assume that they dropped a lot of money on it. We, we were worried, one of the concerns was you couldn't raise money for international studies, but it turned out you could. Well, anyway, uh, I'll undoubtedly want to go on too long because there's so many interesting things to me that I, that I enjoyed and so many people that I admired so much and whose work I followed. I tried to track down uh, almost everybody I could for this occasion. Couldn't quite find everybody, but um, I thought I'd better hurry up because just in the past couple of months, we lost several people who were, from whom I learned a great deal and with whom I was very close. Uh, Sidrell, most recently, uh, Ken Arrow, and uh, uh, Keith Brody, who I brought here as a beginner in the field and who became president of Duke and uh, died a few weeks ago. So I thought, you know, I, I better get out here before I lose all my, all my friends or myself. Um, this is essentially my, my home. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was just great to see the way things developed in that period when I was here. And I would still be here. I, I, I had no intention of leaving until this hostage episode in Africa, which I'll get to in a minute. But uh, that episode sort of rubbed my face in the worst problems of the world. I had been offered, it was a new, a new medical part of the National Academy of Sciences, and it was floundering for a couple of years. It couldn't clarify its mission or get stable leadership. And they approached me here uh, in early May of 1975, and I immediately said, oh, I was terribly honored, which I was, but I couldn't possibly leave Stanford. I loved it too much. And Stanford had been so good to me, had, for example, permitted me to arrange study of chimpanzees when I discovered it. I didn't discover it, but I found out from the people who did that we share 98% of our genes with chimpanzees. And that made it incredibly interesting to see how we could differ as much as we do, and on the other hand, to learn how much of our current characteristics, including some behavioral characteristics, might have been influenced by natural selection. Uh, and I had started out way back when in genetics, and when you're in genetics, you're bound to be interested in evolution. So um, I, uh, we, we, Stanford was incredible. They, they gave, gave me, I think it was 27 acres of land. I mean, it didn't, not me personally, but for several enclosures. I wanted to have semi-natural laboratories. I didn't want to put chimps in, you know, like person in, in uh, impossible situation. On the other hand, the question came up, what is a day in the life of a chimp like anyway in nature? So 
both for its intrinsic interest and for its contribution to converting, to creating on campus a semi-natural laboratory, uh, I sought ways to set up a field station somewhere in Europe. But that was the time of decolonization. And I didn't realize at the outset how violent decolonization was likely to be in most places. So I had a classmate who was a medical missionary who found a good place and was going to do it in Blue Sky High. I found a graduate student at Harvard who wanted to do it and found another place at Blue Sky High. And then uh, Clark Howell, a distinguished prehistoric archaeologist, brought Louis Leakey, the famous Louis Leakey. He and his wife had been great figures in prehistoric archaeology, and they had found a young English woman, Jane Goodall, who was they had established in a relatively a good location in Tanzania. Tanzania was at the time and may still be the most uh, advanced country in Africa in certain respects, at least uh, not particularly violent. So uh, we got acquainted and uh, saw to it that it would be possible to create a real field station. She, she went out there just with her mother and then her husband, who was a marvelous animal photographer, but they had no stability. Bleaky, as an English, in the English tradition, saw no reason to contact the government of Tanzania. After all, uh, it belonged to England. And uh, so I had to go through a process of working things out with the government and getting some funding and getting some, some uh, a few postgraduate students and a couple of postdocs and, uh, and tied in with Cambridge University in England, which had at that time the outstanding primate laboratory in the world. And uh, I insisted that we also have some Tanzanian participation. I felt that we ought to really have an interdisciplinary international formulation. That's always been one of my obsessions that the best teaching and research would come from interdisciplinary and international cooperation, even on this campus. And I think that turned out to be true. But in any case, uh, after the better part of a decade that was very successful with students going back and forth uh, between Stanford and, and Tanzania, uh, four of my students were taken hostage one night, and uh, we didn't know whether they were alive or dead, or if they were alive, where they were, or who had them, or what incentives could exist. So I went over immediately and tried to find out all of that, eventually made contact, found out that it was part of an African political conflict in which rebels against the dictatorial government of Mobutu in Congo, which has since been an utter disaster, with millions upon millions of people killed. Uh, but rebels against Mobutu uh, had uh, been infuriated when uh, President Nereri of Tanzania made a deal. It's a very poor country. As I think Jim Mark once said, they, they had nothing to sell that anybody wanted to buy. So 
he made a deal, a trade deal with Mobutu, and the rebels against Mobutu were furious with him, so it was a really a conflict between, insofar as they were established governments, between Congo, then called Zaire, and, uh, and Tanzania. So I went over and we eventually figured it out who had them and what the incentives might be to get out one and what the incentives might be to get out two others. And finally a fourth one was held on their side. I should say it's a beautiful lake about like Lake Michigan, about 300 miles long and 30 miles across with very high mountains, eight, 9,000 feet on the other side of the lake. Our side of the lake had had some hills, but not as, not as steep as that. Anyway, eventually we got the fourth one out. And in that time, my, my face had been rubbed in the worst problems of the world. The, the hatred and the bigotry and the poverty and the disease. Uh, and uh, I, I had always had concerns about the state of the world and what universities might be able to do to be helpful. It wasn't clear to me then, but um, I thought a number of people leaned on me. They, after I had turned down that position of first full-term head of the then Institute of Medicine, now called National Academy of Medicine, same thing, only it's more bureaucratic now than it was then. Uh, it was new enough that we could do things in all sorts of imaginative way that didn't, uh, didn't cause any problems, or very many. Uh, so uh, I was leaned on quite heavily by the president of the academy at the time, who had offered me the position before, and some good friends at Stanford and elsewhere, that if I wanted to do something about these great problems of the world, if I wanted to mobilize scientific community in some way, if I wanted to get an interplay between scientific community and the policy community, the academy would be the best place to do it. They weren't doing it very much yet, but, but there was there was some favorable inclination toward it if somebody would pick it up and run with it. So I came back here to see, unrealistically, whether we might have something like the academy on a smaller scale here, and it was clear that it, it could be done over a period of many years, but I didn't know how many years uh, would be available. So I accepted the job at the academy and established the first solid basis for an institute of medicine. And uh, it was a very gratifying experience. And I found out that it was indeed possible to do a lot of things connecting the scientific community with the policy community policy community at that time, I have to say, was much better than it is today. It's very sad. We, I, for example, started at a notion that if you had regular meetings during congressional recesses of, uh, of the most respected members of Congress, both parties and both houses, with respected, highly respected people in the scientific community, and got them off in a place where they could be away from the pressures of Washington, that you could do some real adult education, as education of the scientists, but primarily education of the policymakers. And uh, 
that barely exists today. It may be revived again, but uh, uh, one of the parties today is not interested in that sort of thing. There's a very low level of intellectual curiosity and a very high assumption that knowledge is unnecessary. It's a bad time. I, I don't mean to be unduly partisan, though I am. And, uh, uh, but I think it'll be revived. We, we did demonstrate over a period of years that you could make very useful interactions of that kind. And uh, I, I did it elsewhere, too. So I, I feel good about that as a fundamental proposition. But then the sad part is that the only way it was practical for me to do it was to leave Stanford and go to the academy and get this thing rolling. And uh, then after uh, a very gratifying five years of that, I surprised them by saying that, that I was going to move on. Uh, Derek Bach, then president of Harvard, uh, Graham Allison, then dean of the Kennedy School, and Dan Tosterson, then dean of the medical school, came to me, the three of them, and said, we want you to do at Harvard what you've done here. We have a huge investment, I don't know, seven hospitals and a big HMO and, and I don't know how many schools or the university had at least latent health policy interests. And they thought that it would be very, very fruitful to integrate that strength to the extent you could of a university that had invested more than any other in the intellectual and technical resources uh, pertinent to health policy. So I, I did that. That was the next step. And it was a very interesting one. And again, uh, uh, the first thing was to get interdisciplinary cooperation, which was not so simple in itself. I set up working groups. And the working groups had a rule that there had to be on each working group at least one member from each school of the university, one from business, one from medicine, one from public health, and so forth. Uh, and uh, I tried to find within each school uh, one or two people who had, even if they didn't realize it, had some uh, latent interest in, in health policy. You know, health policy is a vast field, as, we, as we've since learned. As I was asked later by various people, President Carter, uh, Joe Califano was in the HEW secretary, uh, the two, the two uh, uh, Clintons, and uh, the first President Bush to help with working on national health insurance programs. And I found out how incredibly difficult it was, both from a policy standpoint, political standpoint, tried to warn their successors, but without much success. You've seen what the situation is now. It's, it's a very difficult field. I think my daughter and my son, when he worked in the Congress, contributed more to it than I did. But I wish them well, and someday we will have uh, whatever it takes to not only to provide health insurance, but the quality of health care that should go with uh, health insurance. So, so then I, uh, 
I moved again. Now, at that time, there were a group of people at Harvard, on the Harvard faculty, who were very much engaged in concerns about the Cold War. Graham Allison, who had done the definitive study on the, uh, uh, on the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, Dick Neustadt, probably the foremost uh, scholar on the American presidency, uh, Paul Doty, a chemist who had tried to make some contact with, with uh, the Russian scientists in the Soviet days when it was virtually impossible to get anywhere. But, uh, but anyway, they had, they had an exceptionally large number of people. And the only other uh, university at all comparable was Stanford, with people like Panofsky and, and Drell and Bob Hofstadter and others, uh, uh, and in political science, my dear friend Alex George. Um, so we had uh, what I think here was small, but the first center on uh, uh, working on Cold War problems, but uh, Stanford, uh, Harvard actually had more people, but not in an organized way. So I tried there to help put that group together in a more organized way. And then they, they said, uh, they were approached by the uh, Carnegie Foundation to uh, try to persuade me to come to the foundation and following the, the uh, proposition that one of our deans here, either Bob Alway or Bob Glazer, I think it was Bob Glazer, said, it's better to give than not to receive. Uh, uh, the, uh, the Harvard group persuaded me that what I ought to do it, and Graham Allison offered to come with me for a couple of years as my right-hand man to, uh, to put this thing together. And uh, we did. At that time, the foundations were scared to death of entering that field for fear of, of government uh, cracking down on them. You know, who, who were these civilians or these pretentious scholars to be entering into what was, in fact, a governmental responsibility? But uh, uh, when I was called by a member of the, early in the Reagan, Reagan's first term, and I was not a great fan of his when he was governor here and I was still here, but nevertheless, uh, I was called and basically threatened, keep out of it. There's some statute that goes back to 1890 uh, for which you'd be vulnerable if you contacted Soviet scientists. But I thought, the best chance we had of doing anything about the Cold War would be through the scientific community. I knew from personal experience there were a few of their scientists who really were seriously interested in resolving the problem, seriously interested in Western ideas, seriously interested in relating to us over here, but of course they were in danger. And so I, in response to the threat from 
the early Reagan administration, which turned out, by the way, was not Reagan's idea. And when I finally met Reagan a couple years later, turned out, incredibly enough, that he was uh, a, uh, a nuclear abolitionist. And a year after that, I met Gorbachev right after he came to power, and he was a nuclear abolitionist. And if their colleagues had listened to them, we might actually today be a world free of nuclear weapons. But at their famous Reykjavik summit, they got very close, but they were pressed very hard on domestic politics in both countries, the Politburo there and the neocons here would be too dangerous, would be betrayal, and wait, wait a few years. And in, in documents that were hidden for 20 years, it turned out they both said if we could do it now, we could probably do it. If we waited five years, it would be very difficult, 10 years unlikely, 20 years impossible. 20 years afterwards, we had a conference here at, at Stanford, which George Schultz and, and Sid Drell uh, were instrumental in, and I helped them to the extent I could in formulating, was it too late, and what would be the obstacles now, both the political and technical obstacles, and, and it was really a matter of very high integrity, the way they conducted it, and honestly faced up to the obstacles which were formidable, and elicited a lot of hostility from very well-meaning people uh, who nevertheless thought it was just impractical. It was, it was too late and that uh, uh, too many countries uh, either had or could make nuclear weapons and there was too much of a, of a love of the, of the power and putative protective ability. Uh, so it, uh, they tried, they tried very hard. Um, it was a, there was a glorious period in which I was deeply engaged. I was a, one of the first Americans to meet Gorbachev. I could see, I had met Reagan a year before, and I could see that when it came to nuclear weapons and nuclear war and all that, that they were very similar. Uh, they had different views about domestic policy, although, although uh, Gorbachev was by far the most democratically inclined uh, leader that, that uh, Russia had ever had, uh, but uh, there were six or seven years when he made huge progress, and uh, uh, my role was to facilitate the contact between him and Reagan to the extent that I could, with the wonderful help from Jack Matlock in the White House, and believe it or not, from Nancy Reagan, who was not a hawk but a dove, and uh, and then. Uh, people like Shevardnadze, who was the foreign minister for the Soviet Union, and a few others, uh, Yakovlev, uh, helped uh, overcome the problems that Gorbachev faced. Gorbachev told me at our very first meeting, he gave me a severe critique of the history of the Russian people, of the repressive regimes from the czars through the communists, through the communists. He was still a communist. But he said those 70 years had been horrible for the Russian people. They had many gifted people in different fields, but they never had the freedom to express their creativity. 
his job was to turn them loose, to find ways to give them the freedom to express their talents. He thought if he had 10 or 12 years, he could probably do that. Unfortunately, he had six or seven. And then, then came uh, Yeltsin, who was a chronic alcoholic, among his other problems, and had no, he was very much like our current president. He had no, no real policies at all. His one policy was to get rid of, uh, get rid of Gorbachev and get control of the country. That was his policy. And he had terrible people around him. He had his Bannons and others like that. Uh, so uh, it was, uh, they finally pulled off their coup. The coup didn't quite succeed, but it weakened him enough that Yeltsin could move in and play a pseudo-democratic role. Standing on a t tank was optics. It was not democracy, it was optics. And uh, he then got control of Russia and, and uh, led to the breakup of the Soviet Union altogether. And in no time at all, messed things up to such an extent that he handed over to, to Putin, who is, was halfway back to Stalin. And uh, I knew Yeltsin, unfortunately, quite well. It was no pleasure. And uh, I know a lot about uh, Putin, but I've avoided any opportunity to meet him. That's, but friends of mine have, and people here at Stanford, like George Schultz, have had, had uh, contacts, and Bill Perry. Is Bill Perry here today? Bill Perry has been one of the great leaders. Really, a, I tell you, nobody in the world has done more to avoid a nuclear war than Bill Perry. You'd think, well, he was Secretary of Defense, and he was a man who invented certain kinds of weapons. The weapons that he invented were non-nuclear with the intention that every country could, have, could defend itself without ever having to rely on, on nuclear weapons. And he succeeded in, with his inventing those weapons, but everything that he's tried to do, he not only was, Bill was not only uh, a very fine figure in government, but a very fine negotiator, and, and he I was on his defense policy board, and we worked out the only time, the only time when there was a framework agreement with North Korea. And when George II came in, who was quite different from George I, I admired George I, but George II had mainly the advantage that he kept quiet pretty much after his presidency. No, he did some good things for AIDS, I have to say that. But uh, he, uh, he denounced when the South Korean leader came on the, on the White House lawn and greeting him, he denounced the agreement that the South Koreans had made to the, the framework agreement that the North Koreans had made with us and with China and was smashed. It was the only time there was a really a close opportunity for a a reasonable agreement with North Koreans, and God knows what will happen now. But uh, it, was, it was a fascinating period. At least it's good to know that it was possible for six or seven years to make really serious headway in, in a dictatorial, long-term dictatorial regime as the Soviet Union was, both during and prior to the 
communist regime. And it was a great pleasure to work with Gorbachev and to bring him closer to Reagan and, uh, and to bring, to help others open Reagan's mind to the opportunity. And uh, they did their best in the time they had. Uh, but uh, anyway, it was, it was a great experience. And uh, so I kept moving from one thing to another. We also had uh, a very important uh, educational program at Carnegie because Andrew Carnegie himself had had two obsessions besides he came here as a poor boy from Scotland, made a lot of money. Once he made a lot of money, he announced he was going to give it all away. And uh, he wanted to do two things. One was to improve education, and you see all the hundreds or thousands of Carnegie libraries, and uh, to work on war and peace. And he built the Peace Palace in The Hague, and he corresponded and dealt with President Wilson about World War I, and did everything in his power uh, to be a peacemaker, a peace builder, as well as, as a, a, a great promoter of education. So we, uh, almost a century later, picked up where he had, had to leave off, and uh, his uh, one living close relative, I asked one time how she felt about his giving away all the money. He said, she said, well, the only criticism I ever made of him was that he waited too long to do it. But uh, it, was, it was the original, old original, the first general purpose foundation. And I had great freedom to use those funds with a very good staff and a lot of consultants. I got the best people I could get from wherever they were in the world on those issues, on the educational and and uh, war and peace issues. And uh, so uh, another, another strange uh, opportunity. When uh, then uh, I helped my friend Cyrus Vance, who'd been Secretary of State under uh, Carter, uh, when he was representing the, uh, the UN in the uh, post-Yugoslavian mess, and uh, David Owen of England was representing the European Union, and they were the two leaders of the effort. And I went over there from time to time uh, to see if I could be of any help and urge them that when, when it was all done, incidentally, two years passed. They, got, they were the only ones that got the three parties to agree. And I regret to say it was the United States government for domestic political reasons that refused to accept that agreement. Two years passed, then there was the Dayton Agreement, and that was considered a great settlement. But thousands of people were killed in those two years that we wasted. We wasted them. Uh, but of course, the, the power of domestic politics on foreign relations is everywhere. You know, a huge instrumentality for better or worse, mostly for worse, I'm afraid, but not always. Anyway, I said to, to Vance and Owen, they ought to write a book about their experience there. And after a few weeks, Vance came to me and said, no, 
This is a worldwide problem. What we need is a worldwide commission. And it should be a Carnegie Commission. Carnegie happened to have a very good reputation before my time and during it in, in setting up commissions with effective follow-through. And uh, so he said, he, so I said, okay, all right, well, why don't you, why don't you do it? Why don't you chair it? He said he would only chair it if I agreed to co-chair it with him. So our board was very enthusiastic about that. And uh, it was very, he was a wonderful person of the highest integrity. But to my great distress, I began to notice early in the commission that he was developing Alzheimer's. So uh, I've had two great Alzheimer's losses in my, in my time. My wife is still with us, but in a late stage. And Sai Vance has passed away. But he, we managed to keep him in a, in a suitable posture of public service, which was his whole life. And we got incredible cooperation from world leaders, 16 on the commission itself and 31 on advisory group, because those who had been close to it, both scholars and, and, uh, and policymakers, those who had been close to it had a sense of how grotesque, you know, the danger of a, of a nuclear war really would be. And even the non-nuclear, you know, Serbian-Croatian struggle was horrible. And uh, so uh, instead of just advising us, those 31 members of the advisory group sat down and wrote pieces. Gorbachev with his own hand, Archbishop Tutu with his own hand, President Carter with his own hand. Uh, people like that felt whatever they could do to make the world realize the, the insanity and the dangers of thinking you could actually win a war. We reached a point where wars were not winnable. And I got them bo both Reagan and, and Gorbachev to adopt the terminology of mass suicide. Mass suicide, we were talking about not wars, but mass suicides once you got into the... And then, of course, what people still don't realize, and it's my, I'm a project I'm on now, uh, is the the uh, the fact that nowadays, although we have many fewer nuclear weapons, we and the Russians, there's still a larger proportion are on a hair trigger alert, which means one guy, like our president, in a few minutes can use nuclear weapons. But worse than that, it, it's not very well known that both those, both ours and the Russians uh, nuclear armadas have uh, uh, hydrogen bombs. And Bill Perry has calculated that the destructive power of the hydrogen bomb is about a million times the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's, uh, you know, and so that's truly a, 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 an existential uh, threat for humanity. We, we sponsored on my initiative about 20 years ago an academy conference on the follow-up to the bombs and uh, was the damage even worse than we knew at the time from the Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It turned out it was the blast 
was our focus, but we had underestimated the radiation effects, we had underestimated the fire effects, as if it weren't bad enough, but, but that was child's play compared with the hydrogen bombs. And uh, so there's no use talking about a nuclear war now, but that's almost unknown. So we're, we're trying in the place where I now work, which I helped to set up 20 or 30 years ago, uh, the Nuclear Threat Initiative, um, an understanding of real facts, not, what do they call it now? Artificial facts or, yeah. Re yeah, re real facts about the nuclear danger, what, what about what it would be, and, uh, and then every modality of education you can possibly think of to get that understood in this country and in, and in the main democracies where, as you know, there is a lot of disillusionment with the efficacy of democracy and a lot of tendency to go for the strong man. And so we're trying to clarify the steps that lead toward authoritarian rule and even to dictatorship. And on the other hand, uh, what that means in the risk of, uh, of any kind of war, even, even without uh, hydrogen bombs, but with hydrogen bombs, uh, no more humanity, maybe no more life on Earth. And anyway, so uh, it is an incredibly dangerous time. And the amount of complacency about that throughout the world, you know, they say to people like me, well, it's very nice that you made some contribution to winding down the Cold War. That, that was a good thing. Forget about it. You guys got hooked on it. The people who were involved in it, like you and Bill Perry and Sid Drell and so on, you're too much in love with what you did during the, during the Cold War, and that's all over now. Well, unfortunately, we're back in, in very bad trouble. So uh, we do what we can uh, on those issues now, and uh, I'm glad to be able to try. You know, when, when the, when, even if it's improbable, the stakes are so incredibly high that you, know, you want to try to do the least you can, whatever you might be able to do, uh, to make a difference. So that's how I came to leave Stanford and bounce around so much. And uh, uh, I am happy to say that the four Stanford people who were, who were in the hostage episode all have had uh, uh, good lives since and contributed a lot. And, and uh, uh, Stanford had made fantastic progress since I was here. I was impressed with the progress being made then. I think it's very modest compared to what's been made since. And I regret to say that aside from a lot of Carnegie grants, I can't claim uh, any credit for what's happened, but I certainly can admire what's happened. And I congratulate all of you for the contributions you've made to this very, very great university. No, wor no wonder it's so hard to get into. <laughs> well, uh, I'll stop now. 
and try to answer any questions you may have or respond to comments you may have because there's so many wise people I recognize and I'm sure very wise people that I don't recognize in this audience and I'm very honored to be here. Thank you for coming and let's continue. First, Dave, Larry Coran, one of the residents that you recruited to the psychiatric residency low these many years ago. What a remarkable contribution you have made in your lifetime. It's just, it's gratifying to hear all the things that you've tried to accomplish and actually accomplished. It's, it's remarkable. I, I congratulate you and I admire you tremendously for all that you've done. I wonder if you could mention some of the groups now active uh, nonprofit groups now active in trying to combat the, or lower the probability of nuclear war? Well, um, there are a number of, uh, of non-governmental organizations like the one I'm in now, Nuclear Threat Initiative. Uh, most of the people who have accepted Nobel Peace Prizes in the last 10, 15 years have put their money into a non-governmental organization that would uh, prevent war, build peace. Uh, that's been one source. It isn't a huge, there, there has been uh, a great amount of increase in philanthropy. For example, the Gates Foundation is, is uh, I guess probably the largest foundation now and bigger than any foundation has ever been. And my daughter is on their advisory committee, which is on uh, world health, primarily health in developing countries. But they didn't start out particularly with the health interest. They started out with some mistaken assumption about AIDS, but, but Mr. Gates is a bright man who learns and what they're doing now is, is I think, uh, is very good so that on the other hand, a lot of the philanthropy goes into what I consider very dangerous stuff. The current Secretary of Education, the woman from Detroit, has been opposed throughout her all adult life to public schools. I mean, all, a public school system. Think of what this country would be if we never had had public schools here. For all of their faults, the absence of a public school system seems to be a disastrous idea. And she's a secretary of education. She's quite candid about saying her opposition to it. She says, well, uh, give, give students a choice. Yeah, choice, if they can pay for, if they can pay for it, yeah, who can pay for her, her choices? Anyway, uh, the, the expansion of philanthropy, which on balance, uh, it probably goes more to peace than to war, nevertheless, has some very unpleasant stuff in it. And uh, 
people give their money for what they want to give it to. I, I told you what Carnegie had in mind. So uh, David Rockefeller died recently. I had been on the board of the Rockefeller University where he was a fantastic, not only philanthropist, but a wise person who cared very much about biomedical research and what it, the conditions under which it could be favored and was wonderful to the faculty and the administration. Our, our former colleague, Josh Litterberg, was president there for some years and got some wonderful people in so that there, there are very good examples of, of philanthropy that is, is peace-oriented. Josh, by the way, besides his fundamental contributions to molecular and, and cellular biology, almost to the origins of molecular and cellular biology, devoted an immense amount of time, the more the longer he lived, to these war and peace issues. No, no, no scientist of his stature that I know gave so much time to consulting with government on how to diminish the risk of nuclear war and biological warfare. He also recruited our daughter into that field, and she's one of the leaders in biosecurity uh, now. So, yeah. Do you have an opinion about the mental health of the current leader of North Korea? Well, uh, not really. It certainly worries me. Uh, it's hard to know whether his mental condition may be exaggerated by outside propaganda, but from what little I can observe, I would be very concerned about his mental condition. Now, uh, the same thing was true of Kim Il-sung, his grandfather, who was the first leader of uh, North Korea. And I'll, I'll tell a brief story involving your colleague, Bill Perry. When Bill was Secretary of Defense, he asked me to be on the Defense Policy Board. And uh, there was a threat of, uh, of a war with North Korea at that time. Uh, Kim Il-sung had been responsible for starting the Korean War in which I served a as a physician through the entire war. So horrible things took care of severely burned patients and severely disturbed patients and so on. And that was bad enough, I was, but uh, not nuclear. Uh, but, uh, uh, Bill, as Secretary of Defense, Bill Perry was under pressure uh, to start a war then with North Korea. And he said to his advisory board, of which I was a member, he wasn't going to do what we did in Vietnam to get into a war without knowing anything about the history and culture of the country, or what, where there might be possibilities for negotiation. He wanted to learn, could I do what I did during the Cold War and quickly convene a group of the best experts we had in this country or in other countries, say in a couple of weeks' time, to give some education to the Secretary of Defense himself about what, what he should know before making a decision. So uh, I soon concluded, with the help of these experts, but I must say it was my opinion to start with, that that the only way 
of doing it was to get somebody who had great stature in the world in the eyes of Kim Il-sung. And I inquired around with people I knew who might have been invited by Kim Il-sung. It turned out I found two. President Carter was one, and, uh, and the then Butrus uh, Butrus Kali, the Secretary General of the UN, was another. So I reported to, the, to Bill, Bill Perry and the, uh, his policy advisory board that I thought the only hope of getting some kind of agreed framework was to send one of them. And presidents never liked that kind of thing. And I knew that Bill Clinton wouldn't be very happy with it. And no president would. But uh, I said the thing to do, in my opinion, is to, to uh, decide which you or President Clinton would believe was the lesser of evils, uh, the Secretary General of the UN or the President of the United States. And you don't even have to invite them to go. You can just say, well, if they want to go, if they want to accept Kim Il-sung's invitation, you won't stand in the way. So that's what Bill Clinton did. He's, he told President Clinton he wouldn't stand in the way, uh, even though they were not great fans of each other. He wouldn't stand in the way if President Clinton wanted to go, or President Carter wanted to go. And President Carter did work out an agreement, the framework agreement, which was by far the closest we've ever come to an agreement. And Kim Il-sung turned out to be not as crazy as we thought he was. And uh, there was a real possibility. Uh, but uh, President Bush, too, uh, shortly thereafter became president. And when the, when the uh, president of South Korea came to visit him very early to get his backing for this framework agreement, uh, President Bush denounced it on the White House lawn within an hour of the arrival of the president of South Korea. He denounced it. And so since we were South Korea's protectors, there was really nothing to be done. And that whole thing went down the drain. And since then, there's never been anything like, remotely like, an opportunity for, for satisfactory negotiations. So I. I'm baffled now, both about the mental state of this grandson of Kim Il-sung's, although it worries me, and about our own, which I say, emotional stability of our own leadership. So I think we're in a time of very great danger. David, thanks. I, I echo Larry Coran's, uh, uh, you've had a fantastic career, and uh, you helped me enormously when I was at UCSF in psychiatry, and you were down here. Um, my, my question is, uh, you are uh, the one guy that could speak to the issues underlying violence. You spent your career at it. You've alluded to the psychological, two, at least two of the factors that, uh, um, lead the risk of violence. One, mental illness. Two, uh, like including alcoholism. Two, uh, ignorance. Um, and I wonder what else you would say if you had to sum up in a few sentences the uh, dynamics underlying violence. 
Well, it's a, it's a very big subject. Uh, I do think that there, there is some uh, genetic predisposition. We, uh, when we were doing, when I was to a certain extent supervising this field station, I would go back and forth between Stanford and Tanzania. And, uh, and, and we had some, uh, managed to find some wonderful then graduate students two of whom are the greatest people in the field today, Richard Rangham, who's a professor at Harvard, and Ann Pusey, who's a professor at Duke, uh, both of whom have vast collections of 30 plus years of data on chimpanzees. Anyway, uh, we, uh, we found that within a community, of 50 or 60 chimpanzees, there was not, there was, it was rare to have a serious violence. There was some violence, but not, very rarely to have lethal violence. On the other hand, it occurred to me it would be interesting and important to study different communities and see what happened if and when those communities made contact. And it turned out in our place and then in quite a number of other places across the equatorial belt of Africa, very similar findings that communities of chimpanzees uh, were extremely violent and in a very deliberate way, uh, the organized attacks. And so, uh, although I don't know enough about the genetics of today, when I started out, my mentor, Tracy Sonneborn, had tremendous foresight about what is happening in genetics today, but uh, I don't know enough about it to make any specific comments about what the genes would be that would predispose to violence, but it does seem to me that, that these findings suggest that the primates closest to us and very closest indeed, close indeed genetically have that tendency for a stranger contact to uh, precipitate violence. Now, Quite apart from that, and maybe more important, uh, I think a huge contributor is uh, uh, dictatorial leadership. That's why I'm so concerned about what's happening here and in perhaps in some of the other major democracies. I don't know what's going to happen in the French election, but some survey research of the last couple of years shows a gradual tendency, but a significant tendency, toward sympathy of toward dictatorial leadership or at least uh, authoritarian leadership and some decline in confidence in democracy. It hasn't reached a place where the lines have crossed, but it's a, it's a very dangerous trend. Uh, I think historically, as I understand from historians who understand these things much better than I do, that the vast uh, the vast majority of really severe violence is in countries that have more or less dictatorial leadership, both internally and their oppression of their own people and the precipitation of civil wars within their own country and in, in inter, interstate violence. So that the, uh, the concentration of power, and there's a strong historical tendency of concentration of wealth and power in a small fraction of the population,
I think that's a huge factor in, uh, in violence. That's about as far as I'm prepared to go. I was wondering about your opinion of the development of the science of psychiatry in recent times. Well, it's when I came here, and I, I meant to mention this, I met with some old friends last night, some of whom are here now, uh, primarily from the old days, the good old days of psychiatry when I was here. Uh, and the psychiatry's done very well here since, I think. The, uh, the, it seemed to me that if we were gonna have the pretension of understanding a good deal about human behavior and enough to be helpful to people who had great distress in, in their behavior, that we would need to, to get information and analysis from every source we could. So I really was passionate about interdisciplinary organization. And my time at NIH I was, and here I was, and open it up to, to people from all countries. I, I knew there was, there was a lot of talent. I, for example, hired a number of scientists from India in my time. And, and I felt that interdisciplinary, international uh, building of strength within psychiatry and around psychiatry uh, would be helpful, and I think it has been. At that time, we had essentially nothing useful in the way of pharmacology, of psychopharmacology. And I think my overall sense of it from people who are still in the field is that there, there, there are fairly useful uh, medications in a number of, of uh, problems. Unfortunately, not in Alzheimer's, but uh, but in uh, uh, there's really substantial advances in in psychopharmacology as it applies to psychiatric disorders, and uh, and considerable uh, considerable advances in uh, in psychotherapy as well. A couple of years ago, I, I heard from. Uh, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania in psychiatry whose name eludes me at the moment, who was instrumental in developing uh, the cognitive approach to, or cognitive slash emotional approach, uh, that, that a document that I had shared years ago for GAP, the Group for the Advancement of Psychiatry, on the question can there be controls in psychiatric research? Is there any way of doing it? And, and we had a very good group, and we concluded that there were some ways of approaching controlled research in psychiatry. And he had found that inspiring in the work that he did. It was very touching. Uh, and uh, I think there, there, is, uh, there are more controlled studies in some aspects of psychotherapy and more creative approaches in some aspects of psychotherapy. I mean, I found myself that I was interested first, as you'd expect, in, in psychology and first clinical psychology. And then I began to find, my God, there's a lot in social psychology that's extremely important. 
uh, for us. And, and when you get into, into the questions of, of, of uh, violence on a larger scale, the, uh, the concept of superordinate goals from social psychology was really fundamental. I, I keep repeating it in everything I've written we need to understand about superordinate goals. That is, goals that are highly desirable to adversarial groups and that can only be achieved by cooperation. And uh, I think, to a certain extent, that social psychology and other branches of psychology have made an impact, certainly developmental psychology. I made a friendship here at the Center for Advanced Study with John Bowlby and then put him in touch with the developmental psychologists around the country. And then when I went to Carnegie, uh, gave him funds to make rounds whenever he'd come to this country to visit the developmental psychologists who were more or less experimental in, in, in practice to, uh, to look at his notions about uh, uh, development in, in psychiatry. So, uh, I, I think that this absorption from different fields, both in modern biology and modern psychology, has made psychiatry a better field. And uh, I, 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 I'm proud of that from a distance, but it's, there's still a long way to go. It's, after all, exceedingly complicated. At least we're, we're, we're beyond the stage where it used to be said the conventional wisdom was the brain is too complex to be studied scientifically. Damn knows it's complex, but when you think of what's happened in neurochemistry and neuropharmacology and neuroimaging, uh, it, it is quite astonishing. This, uh, this uh, thing that I have as a walker is, uh, uh, I've had five consistent years in which I've gotten no worse because of uh, the development of an effective uh, treatment for some aspects uh, uh, of uh, neurological disease. And uh, it's, uh, it, it, there's great progress being made, difficult and complex as it is, in both neurology and psychiatry. such a range of important world problems. We're honored to have had you, and we thank you.